This is Adam Pascal, and you are listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Welcome to Everything Fab Four, a new podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band or popular phenomenon, for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact of the Beatles. They are part of our human fabric. They created an enduring music that brings people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. With each episode, we'll be featuring a new guest to share their Fab Four journey, along with amazing theme music from Black Rabbit. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everybody has a story. For my money, the coolest thing the Beatles ever did was play Till There Was You from the Music Man on The Ed Sullivan Show. Yes! But I never heard them ring. No, I never heard them at all. A beautiful song. Till there was you. A smashing song. Today's guest is a pioneer in the recording industry, and she's still going strong. Judy Collins is a Grammy Award-winning American singer and songwriter with a career spanning over 60 years. She is known for her eclectic tastes in the material she records, which has included folk music, show tunes, pop music, rock and roll, and standards. She is also a well-known social activist. Collins has released 28 studio albums along with four live albums, numerous compilations, and four holiday-themed LPs. In 1967, she achieved global fame for her revered cover version of Joni Mitchell's Both Sides Now, which earned for her her first Grammy Award. Collins experienced the biggest success of her career, with her recording of Stephen Sondheim's Send in the Clown from her best-selling 1975 album, Judah. In 2017, her rendition of the song Amazing Grace was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry from the Library of Congress. In 2019, Judy Collins scored her first number one album on an American Billboard chart with Winter Stories at the age of 80 years old. Welcome, Judy Collins. You know, when it comes to Judy Collins, you, Judy Collins, the issue of uh, longevity comes up because, of course, uh, in addition to all of the incredible career highlights, the hit songs, um, the ways in which you've touched so many fans, there's the fact that you are this longtime alum of Electra Records. I just got a note from uh, from Jack Holzman, president of Electra, who's still around, still thriving at 87, still working for WIA. And uh, he said, I want you to write a few things about Electra because we're coming up uh, in this year in October will be 70 years. He started the album, the label 70 years ago. How did you first get into this business all those years ago? Well, I had a, a, a sort of a heady background because my dad was a singer and performer and radio personality and uh, marvelous, marvelous uh, interpreter of the the songs of the great american songbook and uh 
And so then I also had all the experience of becoming and practicing and becoming a classical pianist and also learning all the songs of Rodgers and Hart and Rodgers and Hammerstein. So it was a multi, a multi, I don't know, genre education and also extremely disciplined because I had to practice a couple of hours every day. And uh, I was on the stage with the symphony orchestra at 13 and I played in all the shows. You know, I played in the school show and the various shows of my of my teachers and I was on my father's radio show. So I was really kind of ready for the 60s when they happened. Your father clearly had a very prodigious influence on your life as an artist and musician. Did he have a great influence on your singing and your playing and your approach to, I don't know, the idea of technique? There was nothing technical about it because he was just a great singer. So he'd take a song and he would just sing it beautifully. And that was, and he'd also choose the best songs. You know, a big show would come from Broadway on all those very big fat CD, you know, records, huge records from the Library of Congress. And he would choose the best song of, whatever the show was. And so I learned that from him. And then I heard him perform them and sing them and learn them and practice them. And it was an automatic. The other parts that I learned from him, everything from how to, how to show up and be on time and not miss a show and how to say to yourself, it does not matter if there are two people in the audience. One might be the queen. Um, you know, he was very philosophical about it all, but he was extremely professional about it. He was always prepared. He wrote his own scripts, both for his engineer and himself. His engineer's was was typed. His was in Braille. Um, he always looked great. He woke up smiling. He sang. He said, rise and shine and, you know, get yourself together because it's another day. And he was very, very professional. I also learned from him how to perform with alcoholism in my life because that's what he did. And it didn't let him, it didn't stop him and it didn't stop me. I mean, I don't know until it did finally, of course. But uh, by that time, I was in my 30s, 40s, just barely 39, 38 when I got sober. But I learned about everything, about the technique of doing what you had to do to be prepared to do it. As a sightless person, your father must have been just an incredible influence and role model. When did he and your mother start to recognize that uh, you had a great musical aptitude? I was, I was fortunate, as I said, because they spotted, my parents spotted the fact that I was very musical right away. So I, I was on the piano by the time I was five, and that was lifelong. I still practice every day. It's interesting in the pandemic, all of those characteristics come out in full bloom. I must practice every day. I must exercise. I must eat right. I must keep in touch with creative friends. I must try to write things and be creative myself. So it's an everyday process, and it goes on all the time. It's the underpinning of what the career really is about. So how did Jack Holtzman first come into your life and uh, this recording career began to unfold for you? My beginnings, the first couple of years that I worked, I, I did as many clubs as I could all over the country, 
I played a lot of places. I landed in New York in in uh, '61 and was headlining headlining at the Gertie's Folk City in the Village. And I did a television show over at the Village Gate. And Jack Holzman showed up, and he came up to me and he said, "Dear, you're ready to record." Now. He had been to see me when I was working in Denver on my first gig because I was opening for Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson's the guy who discovered Joan Baez and called, uh, I think he probably called uh, Manny uh, at Vanguard, I mean, Maynard Solomon at Vanguard and told him, but he also called uh, George Ween, the head, the guy who started the uh, Newport Festival and, of course, the Jazz Festival. And he told George that he had found his uh, opener for the moder- for the um, Newport 1959 festival. And, of course, Joan went, and it was a huge opening and big-time uh, exposure to her as a great artist. And he called Jack when, he opened, when I opened for him, and he told Jack that he had found his – he said, Jack, I found your Joan Baez. So and I did I did not know this until only just a couple of years ago. Jack he parcels out this information to me as we both grow older together. <laughs> it's like he doesn't want me to know all of his secrets right up front, you know. That's right. Why not? If you've got eight decades decades to play with, why not bring out the information piecemeal and, you know, build up the suspense, right? And uh he said, "Yeah, I went to see you when um Bob Gibson called me from New York, from Denver. He said, I went to Denver and I saw you there, but I did not introduce myself because I saw you had talent, but I did not know whether you had what it takes, which I think is very, very interesting. And so that day in 61, two years later, there he was, and he said, you're ready to record. And I was, and that's when it all started. And I think that that moment when Jack said, okay, now we're going to make this real and give you the solidity of an album, of a label behind you. And of course they were there with me the whole time. They have been, even now, my most recent effort, which I didn't have anything to do with actually, uh, the people over at Electra in England and uh, Warner's um, found this gentleman in England who had played Amazing Grace in the street at very loud levels to help the nurses and doctors at the Charing Cross Hospital give them inspiration. And this fellow Tony at at WIA said, we have to do something with this. We're going to make this into a global international choir with people from all over the world joining and singing with Judy, and they did it. What a moment that must have been. This is such a powerful story because it it almost speaks to a different time. I suppose it does speak to a different time in the history of the music business when longevity and longstanding relationships were really important for for being successful and clearly working with Elektra all these years, and I guess more specifically, Jack Holtzman, has made all the difference for you. He made a record with um, Josh White when Josh was blacklisted from every place. Josh is such a big story. Josh Josh White is, people don't know really how grand and great his history was. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had him at the White House for three 
four state dinners during um, their four years, their how many, almost 12 years in the White House. And she would take him with him to Europe to talk about international brotherhood and sisterhood. And he would never, when he was in Europe, overseas. He would never sing strange fruit overseas. Interesting, isn't it? And so I got to know all these artists that were on Electra long before I met Jack. You know, I'd learned Bob Gibson's songs and Ed McCurdy's songs and and uh, God, Oscar Brand's songs. <laughs> and I needed the partnership. I needed the face behind me. And these days, if you make a record and it doesn't sell a million dollars, they throw you out. And if I, if that had been true then, I wouldn't have gone, you know, another step, really. But Jack was old school, and he believed in giving you a chance. After about four or five years, when I was paying everybody's salary, so I was pretty popular around the <laughs> around the the water tank. <laughs> when you think about Jack Coltman's achievements in comparison today he seems like an absolute giant he was always courageous and he did things like he wanted to acquire when he got ready to to sign the doors he called me up and he said you know i'm making a and this was the time as i said when i was paying the bills over there and he called me up and he said i want to play you the music because you're you're sort of you know you're part of the board of directors here and you should hear it before you know what hit, you know, before you know what hit you, and so he played me the doors. I loved them. I loved Jim Morrison. I thought it was adventurous and imaginative. And he went on like that with many other different kinds of artists. So it was a culturally rich dimension in that label, where I was nurtured, taken care of, and also I was side by side with a lot of unusual and extraordinarily talented people. When you put it that way and you use the example of the of the doors, it's clear that he didn't just have a business sense. He had a flat-out artistic sense, too, working together in tandem. You have, to have, you have to have entrepreneurs involved in these quests because nobody who's involved with business and making money is going to have the first clue about artistic integrity or progress or development or some things don't make it make money but some things make make history so speaking of history when does your beatles origin story start when does that begin to take hold in your aesthetic sensibilities my um history included working a lot with eric weisberg and eric was the guitarist and the banjo player of note who played on everybody's albums and traveled with me we went to russia together in 1965 and and Eric, from the beginning, was always playing Beatles songs. And they were just, they, they were spellbinding to us. We loved them. They were, in a way, you know, you listen to those early records. They were all three minutes long, those songs. And they were enchanting. They were singable. They were accessible. They were beautiful and harmonic. And so I just took a flying leap and recorded um, in my life in 1966, and it was on the record when I also took a flying leap into another direction with my music because I'd been recording up to then a lot of guitars, a lot of uh, singer-songwriters, a lot of what you might expect 
I was making history, but I was also following a certain line. But then we jumped into Since You've Asked, and uh, rather to um, uh, In My Life, and we recorded Bertolt Brecht songs, and we recorded songs from the Marat Saad, which were on Broadway. Uh, we recorded, uh, I found Leonard Cohen that year, so I did th two of his songs, Suzanne and, and uh, Dress Rehearsal Rag. So, and Hello Hooray, I think is on that sixth album. So we were, and we recorded with orchestra this time with Josh Rifkin doing the orchestrations on most of the tune, most of the songs. And so we had just kind of flown off a cliff. I mean, it was totally unexpected. People did, it was breaking the mold. And I didn't know how badly we were reviewed until probably 35, 40 years later. <laughs> I was I was very busy singing, performing, traveling, creating albums, writing songs, locating singers, digging up songs to work on, so making changes in direction. So I didn't even realize what had happened in '66, but it was pretty profound, and um, and it set the tone for everything else because it meant there was a signal which said, "Don't look at what she's done." <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> we'll have more from Judy Collins, including her Beatles origin story, right after this message. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to our conversation on Everything Fab Four with Judy Collins. A few moments ago, you spoke about 1966 and uh, songs like In My Life really connecting with you and this, this world in which you were working. Uh, it's it's almost as though uh, they were rewriting this industry and the way it approached songs and structure right before our eyes. Do you, do you see it that way? Oh my! What a great insight. I've never thought of that. Honestly, um, you're right. It was exactly that. That it was an umbrella. It was a Beatles umbrella. <laughs> do you regularly include the Beatles in your set lists? Well, it's still, I was just listening to a tape that one of my friends hijacked from the Philadelphia Folk Festival, and it's from 1986, and I'm closing that show in the middle of a rainstorm within my life, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, what a song. I have to start doing it again as a closer. I usually close with Amazing Grace. And I have to go back to In My Life. Maybe I'll do both, but I have to use it. It's so beautiful. So it just got me that song. One of the hallmarks of the Beatles story, of course, is they basically had a partnership with the same producer, George Martin, from their first song, Love Me Do, all the way until the completion of Abbey Road. What kind of difference does that make? Well, I tell you, I worked with the same producer, Mark Abramson, for my first uh, nine, eight or nine albums. And then we did two or three other albums before I joined up with Arif Martin, who was 
a genius. Arif really set the whole picture up for my ongoing work, I think. And and I I found him. I didn't know that much about him. Um, I knew that he was on the staff at Atlantic, and I knew that he'd produced a guy named named Danny O'Keefe. And I heard a recording of Danny O'Keefe's, and I said, I've got to have that guy who produced Danny O'Keefe's song. And I got David Geffen. I was kind of floundering and wondering what to do next. And I got, Dave, got David Geffen. I went to see him because he'd taken over Elektra after Jack had sold it. I said, what will I do? And he said, well, do what you love. And I said, well, I'm, I'm just kind of lost. And I said, one thing I do want, and let me see if you can do this for me. I want to get Arif Mardin to produce my album because I have a song here that I wrote. It's called Song for Duke. And I think that Arif Mardin would be the right one for it. So he said, okay. And people, other people had said to me, oh, you'll never get him away from, he's at Atlantic. He's not going to move over to, over to Electra and work with you. I said to David, I want Arif Martin to uh, be the be the producer, but I want Phil Ramone to be the engineer. And I got both, which was a miracle. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. And so we made two albums together. We made Judith in 1974, and then we made... Um, Bread and Roses in 1975, which didn't come out, I don't think, until 1976. What was it like working with Arif? I recently spoke to John Oates, and he could not stop singing the praises of Arif Mardin in terms of how they transformed, uh, how he transformed as producer Hall and Oates. Arif was incredibly creative, and you know, he had worked, he'd produced Aretha, he produced, he created the Bee Gees. One day they went to rehearsal with him. He said, try singing a little bit higher. And they, and they did. And he said, that's how we're going to record you. And that's how he made their careers. So he was very, very smart and a wonderful man, a wonderful, wonderful, sophisticated, intelligent, smart, uh, gentle, just, just totally remarkable man. When you prepare for an album to record, you know, a record like Judith, which is a monumental uh, hit record of the 1970s with Send in the Clowns, uh, just a, a landmark album. When you prepare for that, how do you go about uh, selecting the songs? How does that happen? It happens because of the love affair that I have with certain songs. I don't go near them if I don't fall in love with them. And they could be from any genre. They could come out of opera. They could come out of, you know, the pen of, uh, of uh, Paul Simon or Polly Williams or anybody. I could go to a movie and hear something and go home and have to sing, have to sing it. I mean, it's not a matter of choosing. It's that you have to suddenly you become you become possessed by a song, and it means you've got you must sing it, and that's how those choices come. And usually, at a certain point in any given year or perhaps eighteen months, I will have settled on a group of songs that I have either just written or or in the older days have chosen from various things that I've picked up over the year. 
And to put them together is what I love doing. Well, selecting those songs, I guess, is your kind of storytelling. And you've done it so very, very well over the years with your albums. And of course, that's what we hear, too, with the Beatles when we think about them here at Everything Fab Four. And of course, sometimes you don't even do it uh, to be hip or to be cool. Uh, in fact, for my money, the coolest thing the Beatles ever did was play Till There Was You from the Music Man on the Ed Sullivan Show. Yeah! Da, 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 da. But I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all. A beautiful song. Till There Was You. Smashing song. What are your memories of the Beatles as people? Well, it was funny. I got to know um, Linda McCartney before she and I, she and Paul got together. So I was in New York. Uh, my son was about five. And Linda came, Linda had somehow connected with me, and I guess through Electra, and came to take a whole series of pictures of me with my son in the park, in the snow. I'm an Upper West Sider, so it was a natural in New York. And uh, she and I became friends. And so when I started dating Stephen Stills, she called me one day. I was in California, and she called me one day, and she said, what do you do about the groupies? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm going out with this guy. And uh, his name is Paul McCartney, and he's in this group called the Beatles. And she said, they're everywhere. The groupies are everywhere. And I said, you know, Linda, I can't advise you. I think, I think you'll make the right decision, which she did. She never left his side. <laughs> I think in all the years they were together, they might have spent one night to get apart, but that was it. <laughs> I think possibly the only exception was when he was in jail in Japan in January 1980. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. And that was it. So uh, that was my most intimate exchange with that couple. And uh, perhaps it was helpful to both of them. And then after... My son's death, Linda came to see me. Of course, again, they're in California. I, they're in London. I'm here. So I didn't really, I knew George. I met up with him because a friend of mine was friendly with him. And I admired them from afar, but I didn't really know them very well. And after Linda's death, Linda came to take another series of pictures with me after my son's death. And it was very special time and very, very healing and wonderful and so on. So when she died, it was such a blow, cancer is to everybody. I've lost a brother to cancer now, and I have another brother who's struggling with something that's really horrendous. But anyway, uh, after her death, Paul reached out to me, and we did a number of things together and became much more friendly, and, uh, oh, I just love him. He's a wonderful man. So I know Ringo pretty well. Uh, I think he's wonderful. You know, he and he and Paul are the, the uh, survivors, so to speak, of that era in that particular group. 
And uh, he's a real trooper and a real stand-up guy. And I, I, I like them both a lot. I wonder if you have any thoughts to share with us. Uh, we're, as you know, closing in on the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's senseless murder in December 1980. Do you recall that time? Oh, God. I have a friend. One of my best friends lives in that building. And I can't. Now she's living in. She's selling that apartment, but it's already on the market for three years or something. But every time I go by, I just say, oh, my God. This is it's it's such a tragedy for everybody really is. I know what you mean. And it's one of those things that doesn't really get better with time. It's interesting that you uh, bring up Linda already just doing this podcast. I've had a number of people speak very, very movingly about her. Oh, she was great. She was an angel. She was a great photographer and a great gal, you know, a good friend. Um, had a very good uh, take on how to raise her kids, and I love her kids. Mary's Mary's just uh, the, you know, she's really, really something else. She's the cat's pajamas, as they say, and uh, they're special. They're normal people. They're real people. They don't put any pretense on, and they don't pretend, and they don't make makeup that somehow they're different than you or better than you and you know so they think on a very normal level which is hard to do I think with children of famous people I think they have a hard time getting the notion that they actually are not of some other race or from some other planet are there any Beatles songs that you particularly enjoy uh, in performance I love playing Norwegian Woods. It's something we do quite often in concerts, just because it's a lot of fun to do. Why is that, do you think? It's very rhythmic, which is a good alternative for most of my... I need rhythmic songs between some of the sadder songs or the slower-tempered songs. But it's up and lively, and it opens the show very well. You spent a lifetime, of course, as a social activist and particularly working hard on behalf of women in terms of empowerment and equality. I wonder if, like me, you are excited by students today, young folks today, and the way they are approaching the world. Well, they're, they're reacting to things in the moment. They're actually experiencing history being made. They're part of it. They're not deaf, dumb, and blind like so many of us were in the old days. I don't include myself, but I must have been deaf, blind, and dumb in some ways. But these people are waked up. I think I agree with you heartily. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Judy. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. You've been uh, very stimulating to my imagination, which I appreciate. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Kenneth. And good luck to everything you're doing. You're making a difference. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information about the podcast, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related book, John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life. 
The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful all production with editing and post-production assistance from music industry and communication students at Monmouth University. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.